0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.
1: My mother was not real. She was an early dream, a hope. She was a place. Snowy like here, and cold. A wooden house on a hill above a river. An overcast day, the old white paint of the buildings made brighter somehow by the trapped light, and I was coming home from school. Ten years old, walking by myself, walking through dirty patches of snow in the yard, walking up to the narrow porch. I can't remember how my thoughts went then. Can't remember who I was or what I felt like. All of that is gone, erased. I opened our front door and found my mother hanging from the rafters. I'm sorry, I said, and I stepped back and closed the door. I was outside on the porch again. You said that, Rhoda asked. You said you were sorry? Yes. Oh, Mom. It was long ago, Irene said, and it was something I couldn't see even at the time, so I can't see it now. I don't know what she looked like hanging there. I don't remember any of it, only that it was. David Van is the author of the non
0: fiction works... Last Day on Earth, a portrait of the NIU school shooter, and A Mile Down, the true story of a disastrous career at sea. He's the author of the short story collection, Legend of a Suicide. His first novel is Caribou Island. Thank you for speaking with me, David.
1: Thanks for having me on the show. David, uh, this book is
0: set in Alaska, as is Suquan Island, and they're both set on these kind of
1: remote settings. Tell us about growing up in Alaska, which was, I gather, where you were born. Right. I was born out on the Aleutian Islands on Adak Island, and then spent my early childhood in Ketchikan in southeast Alaska, which is rainforest. It has over 230 inches of rain a year, so it rains basically every day. And our house was at the end of a street uh, right at the edge of the forest, and so I spent a lot of my first couple years of memory playing in that forest. And It was an incredible place because we really had wolves and bears, and I always felt that I was being watched and possibly hunted, and it felt very live and kind of scary in that way. And it was a thick forest that had a lot of deadfall, of trees that had fallen over the path, and a lot of undergrowth. And so when I was a kid, as I'd run along on these pathways, I would sometimes actually fall through and disappear and hit a second floor floor below and and it seemed a mysterious place to me because of moments like that uh huge strange bright waxy flowers and and these uh fungal growths on the trees these conks and it was it was a, an amazing place and that the, the fish were enormous too that the first salmon king salmon that i caught was taller than i was by about an inch and a half as a 45 minute fight in a river and it seemed like the battle could go either way my dad was holding on to the back of me so he wouldn't lose me uh, and my grandfather caught a 250-pound halibut, uh, which is just enormous, about eight feet tall and about maybe five feet wide or something. And just uh, watching that emerge from, from the depths, from hundreds of feet below us, and watching it just grow larger and larger until it was impossible by the time it got to the surface, I, I guess that's what Alaskan landscape has always meant for me, this this place that shifts and transforms and starts to become metaphor and starts to indicate the inside lives of the characters and and that's what i kept returning to in caribou island is i just kept describing the place and then the story and the characters came from the place there's a great passage in this book where
0: your one of your characters says they're seeking an elemental life and mm-hmm. and i think that's one of the things you do really well in this book is is Portray that, and you know when you are describing the landscape, the, particularly the deadfalls and the halibut coming up, mm-hmm. there is this feeling in the book that there are surfaces, and there are, but those surfaces are always razor thin veneer. There are thin ice everywhere in this mm-hmm. book.
1: Yeah, at at one point, Irene looks down through the ice on the lake and finds it opaque. She can't see down into anything. And the characters often find that they can't see who they are, and they can't get who they are now to match up with who they were five years ago or 20 years ago. And the characters are trying to make stories of themselves that will make sense. And the natural landscape all around them is like a giant mirror, and it, it also amplifies what's going on for them. Um, so I think that wilderness doesn't have any meaning on its own. I think I think we give it meaning. And because things aren't going very well for Gary and Irene, whose 30-year marriage is falling apart out in the wilderness, uh, that wilderness becomes a kind of terrifying place. All the people in this book, you know, uh, are, are, I really like them
0: all. And it, it has an interesting plot arc, which is uh, briefly put, bad to worse. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the train wreck. <laughs> But despite that fact, I, one of the things I like is there's a, there's quite a bit of humor, I think, in this book. And I, I hope it's intentional. There are a lot yeah. of scenes that are very funny in a very dark and <laughs> manner. Uh, I'd like you to talk about uh, creating some of the other characters. We have Irene and Gary. Their 30-year marriage is falling apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have two children. There's, there's Rhoda, the daughter, and, mm-hmm. and Mark. And... Mm-hmm. And uh, so talk about creating this kind of secondary cast and exploring their lives as well.
1: I was really surprised that there end up being seven points of view in the book. It, it's mostly Irene, who's the main character, and her husband, Gary, and their daughter, Rhoda. Um, but we get bits of the other characters' points of view also. And uh, writing for me is, is pretty unconscious. I never really know what I'm going to be doing I don't know what characters are going to do and say each day as I sit down to write. And I was actually surprised that the book was about marriage. I, I, that'll sound ridiculous if you've read the book. But, but I mean, because everyone's thinking about marriage. The whole book was about marriage. And I actually didn't realize that's what it was going to be about. Um, but uh, these other characters, I, I ended up having a lot more fun with the book than I had imagined also. Uh, there's a light cameo role for my father. He had a, a very heavy role in Legend of a Suicide where... That was really, that whole book was about that father-son relationship and his suicide and the legacy of his suicide. But in this book, he's engaged to Rhoda and he's having an affair with Monique, someone half his age who's come to visit Alaska. And he's just being used and manipulated by her in ways that I find really funny, you know. He's in the helicopter with her at one point, and she puts her hands on him and, and keeps him bent over in a U-shape and thinks it's funny that he's getting uncomfortable, and then tries to kiss in the helmets, and they can't reach the lifts because of the helmets in the helicopter. And I, I don't know. I find him really funny, and it, it was fun to give my dad uh, a light role, where by the end... Um, you know, he's making some kind of uh, questionable decisions about the meaning of his life and, and <laughs> what the life shape will be. And, and I just I had I had a great time with that. I enjoyed Carl, too. He's a young character who's Monique's boyfriend who's being dumped by her and left in the tent in the rain. And she goes off with Jim on helicopter trips. And he's like who I was when I was returning to Alaska after not having been there for a few years, where he doesn't know how to fish and doesn't know how to do anything. And people have to take pity on him. And he ends up on people's couches, like <laughs> crashing in <laughs> various places. And, and that was me, actually and and uh, and that was also the story of my first love the first woman i fell in love with who didn't like me very much and treated me pretty badly. <laughs> so my sympathies are with Carl, but, but he's really fun. You know? So I actually I love that you found humor in the book because for me there's a lot of humor there. And I think a couple of reviews have just talked about it being you know kind of dark in the darkness, but, but it's not just that. You know. It's a tragedy, know. but it's also got uh, these other characters, a wide cast of characters, and it's a tour of Alaska a bit. You go out on a commercial fishing boat and work in a cannery, and um, it's a place I love, and, it, and it's varied. Well, one of the things I, I, I like about it, the book, is this picture of marriage, and
0: it's you have a lot of really great single sentences. There's so many great sentences in this book that just really nail the whole character of marriage and 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 how people. It, marriage is such a long-term thing, and we start <laughs> out here and we end up there. Right. And it, and when we start out here, we have we think we have an idea where we're going to end up, but that's not the case, is it?
1: Yeah, in the there, there are actually some some kind of grim uh, comments on marriage at various points in the book. And so when my wife read the book, she actually said to me. Are we okay? <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine so yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, it's funny because I'm happily married but uh but all I felt all these things that the characters feel at times like that that marriage is another form of being alone, for mm-hmm. instance, and that uh, marriage is like a sense of self where you just assume it's there and that you can rely on it and think it's there, and then every once in a while when you need it you. Try to reach it, and you realize, God, it's just there's just kind of nothing there. There's no substance to it in some in some basic way. And Rhoda, as she's finally engaged to Jim, has this feeling that lonely that marriage could feel a little lonely, just the two of them kind of bumping around, and that they need another focus. Uh, you know, maybe they need to start thinking about having a kid to have some other focus, because the idea that your life would be just what it is is terrifying. That that no one really wants that. We want to be distracted by something else all the time. So these are, I guess, some of my own thoughts and and experiences, but it was again very unconscious and out of control as I was writing it. Like I had no idea what would happen. There's one moment where uh, Rhoda is having uh, a Sunday at a restaurant and (laughs) thinks of the three lumps of ice cream as the the three uh, things that you're supposed to have in life, the the husband, house, and kids, and they're supposed to fill you up or make you sick trying. (laughs) You know, there's little moments like that, right? I I think, where did that come from?
0: Talk about uh, creating the the two main characters, Irene and Gary. Uh, Irene, we learned from the very beginning of the book, Irene is, has been traumatized by uh, coming home and finding her mother has committed suicide. Mm-hmm. And this is something that has touched your life as well, and it, it's the subject of, of legends of a suicide. Mm-hmm. And I'd like you to talk, too, because in this book you've talked about writing yourself and your father into this book um, consciously, mm-hmm. so talk about making that conscious decision to include these kind of painful and intense subjects that m- many people wouldn't even want to talk about to somebody they really
1: knew. Right. I I do find that I I need real stories in the background to power the fiction. I need that emotionally and psychologically in order for me to care about the characters and what's going on, so In Legend of a Suicide, I had my father's suicide in the background of that book. Um, He killed himself when I was 13. Uh, In this novel, Caribou Island, I have two family stories in the background. One is uh, my mother's mother uh, found her mother um, uh, hanging. uh, And I'm not sure exactly that that's the truth in real life, but that's what I ended up, the version I had in the book because I've heard several versions in real life and that was true of my father's suicide too. It was impossible to ever know what was actually true. Mm -hmm. Um, But in any case, her mother died of of suicide somehow. And there's another story in the background, which is the murder-suicide of my stepmother's parents. And that was something that was really disturbing. When I was 12 years old, 11 months before my dad uh, committed suicide while talking with my stepmother on the phone, she lost her parents. Uh, Her father had told her mother that the last 15 years of marriage had been a lie, and He'd been having an affair with another woman and he was moving on. And maybe that's too simple um, because also she was she was kind of awful in some ways and, and maybe I should be more sympathetic to him. Um, but in any case, uh, she wrote suicide notes to everyone, including him, and didn't plan to kill him but then uh, must have changed her mind because she ended up killing him before then killing herself. Uh, so th- that was such a disturbing story from real life. I wanted to try to understand that, and what happens in the book is different, and the characters are different. I don't really remember my stepmother's parents, so these are made-up characters. And Irene, I realized only six months after I'd finished writing the book that Irene is me in many, many ways, and I actually did not realize that the entire time that I was writing it. That a lot of her views toward Gary, her husband, are my, my views toward men, the men in my family, um, about their. impatience and vacancy in various ways and the disappointment I felt toward them and anger I felt toward them at different times. Um, This legacy of the suicide in her past that's 45 years back for her is one way for me to write about the longer legacy. I'm 30 years past my father's death now and I have a different sense of how that affects my life in the long term. For Irene, she's tried to erase it and make it not have happened and forget it, and now that seems like a loss, and she'd like to remember her childhood and remember her parents. Um, She also has these uh, terrible headaches after they're out in a storm and, and loading logs and not sheltered from the rain, and I had two year-long headaches uh, before sinus operations. I had these terrible years of pain where I'd walk around for days and and not be able to sleep, and painkillers didn't do anything. I'd just be moaning. <laughs> and uh, so th- there's a lot of different parts of my life that have gone into Irene. Uh, but I, what I love about fiction is that all of that comes together and forms some kind of coherent person in in this way that is such a surprise each day. I don't know what's going to happen and what she's going to think. And it was only six months afterward that I, I understood that I was her. I mean, it, it's such a blind process. That's very strange to me about fiction, but I love that about it. Boy, that is so interesting to hear you say that. I, I mean... Uh
0: One of the things you you were talking about, the observations of men, I love your observations of men, because (laughs) these (laughs) are things things that I've thought and also have been said to me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right, (laughs) right. Yeah, that's uh, the funny (laughs) thing, being on both sides. I'm both Irene with her view of Gary, like not liking his impatience and Mm -hmm. vacancy, and I'm also Gary— I have that vacancy and I have that impatience (laughs) and I have these failed projects that are just doomed from the beginning that aren't going to work, just like his building the cabin. Mm -hmm. You know, I've built boats and had the same kind of experience with them. So it's very strange to find myself in in all the characters a bit on on both sides of of, uh, conflicts. Well, you know, I think
0: one of the smartest things you say is that how men never grow up. I don't think any of us get past <laughs> being teenagers. I know that's uh, that's constantly <laughs> accused of me, either recently, too. So <laughs> mm-hmm. Talk about uh, men viewing, you know, full-grown men who have had full lives and marriages and reasonable success. I mean, Gary and Irene have been together for 30 years. Their kids mm-hmm. are pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about how a man like that is also just like a big damn teenager.
1: Well, I think it again comes back to stories, the stories that we tell about our lives to make sense of our lives and to make a sense of self and and to make up who we are. And I think that Gary has various ideas about who he is that 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 don't match up to reality. He He went to Alaska originally to run away from his dissertation in Berkeley, which he realized he wasn't going to do because he he couldn't really compete with the other students. He wasn't quite smart enough. This is, again, based on something in my real life, and that I wanted to be a medievalist, and I realized I wasn't smart enough. That I had studied Latin and Old English and Middle English and German, but I didn't have French and Old French. Old and French and Old I just, French. <laughs> I wasn't going to quite make it, you know? So, uh, you know, there's a little bit of, of my real life there. Um, but I think that, in some ways, if you don't live the life that that you feel like you should have lived, you get frozen in some way in time, and you you kind of don't progress in some way. And so Gary is now going out to build this cabin on Caribou Island, and it's a 30-year deferred dream. And in some ways, he's stuck back there, and he feels that he's meant to build this cabin, but he's meant to build it then, and he's so filled with regret over that 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 he's really stuck and can't see what's going on now and can't really see Irene and can't see the important things that are going on with her. And doesn't sense the the danger that he's in. Also, I, I also uh, love uh, the the
0: their children, Rhoda and Mark. And, and Mark and Karen are an interesting pair, and this is <laughs> let's explore uh, Alaska a little bit.
1: <laughs> Very like Santa Cruz, and
0: Mark <laughs> and Karen. Yeah, they they could come. They could have come straight from Santa Cruz. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> well, talk about that that aspect of Alaskan culture, which we don't really hear much about. We hear, hear about about some of the fishing and the harder edge stuff, but but I, yeah. I, I guess it, it makes sense that there would be a huge marijuana culture up there.
1: A- absolutely, Alaska is a even more polarized than the rest of the country, I think, into far left and far right. Uh, because a lot of people have gone up there to, to live on some land, be kind of away from other people, be kind of not tracked by the government so much. And that goes with people who are far on the left and are are growing marijuana and getting high and fishing in the summer and going to Hawaii for part of the winter. And it also holds true for people who are very conservative and with lots of guns and are, are you know, sort of living on their own and imagining themselves as as isolated in, in some way. So uh, it's a strange and kind of dangerous state <laughs> <laughs> in that way. Um, but the character of Mark is based on a friend of mine who's a, is a commercial fisherman up in Alaska and, um, you know, loves smoking pot. And and uh, has a very relaxed, kind of fun life, and has these fun jokes, and is very smart, and and I just find him really entertaining. (laughs) And so the the character of Mark was, was based
0: on him there. One of the things that I think is interesting, for all how open it is and how much open spaces it is, I really get the feeling that life in Alaska is, to a certain extent really confining and trapped because you just don't have there's just not that m- much you can do it's gorgeous and beautiful but mm-hmm. i have the feeling that the the characters all feel isolated it's literally cut off from the rest of the united states even though it's got in right. united states culture
1: right yeah that is a very strange thing about alaska you imagine it being expansive and that your life up there will be expansive, and then you end up in these small little toeholds of civilization that are enclaves of despair. As <laughs> I wrote in the book, a lot of them do feel largely like that. I mean, they're obviously happy people in Alaska who are having a great time, like out fishing and hunting, and or just hiking and 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 mountain biking, having a great time being in the place. But there are a lot of people who imagine that they could somehow create a different life there or escape something. Of course, that never has worked for anyone anywhere. You you can't run from yourself, and wilderness just becomes a giant mirror. It's the worst possible place to go to, to escape. Uh, So that's the case for Gary in the book, and that's the case for a lot of people that I've met in Alaska. Uh, So it can feel like uh, you're trapped there after a while. And one thing I'm interested in is that in everyone's lives, whether they live in Alaska or somewhere else, there can be this awful sense of momentum that happens, that somehow your life starts to become something that wasn't quite what you had imagined or wanted. And then what are you supposed to do with that? I love
0: that. Now, now, that's something that I think is really an interesting observation. I want you to talk a little bit more about this sense of momentum, because that's what happens is if you you think you're going to write your dissertation, you never do. You think you're going to get out of school and write science fiction, and instead you end up working at the chemical factory.
1: Yeah, Mark, the, the the guy that Mark is based on, the commercial fisherman I know in Alaska, was really funny about this uh, a couple summers ago. He was listening to music from the late 70s, some of it uh, about kind of regret and what happened to the shape of one's life. <laughs> he was saying how it kind of brings a tear to his eye. <laughs> He's like, how did I get into my 40s and somehow get frozen in time? Like, Like what I had imagined was going to happen in my mid-20s, somehow I just zipped from mid-20s to mid-40s, and, 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 and what happened? Like, my life didn't become what I imagined. In um, Irene, she has this awful momentum where Gary hasn't been good for her, this marriage hasn't been good for her, and she's not sure exactly why she got stuck in it. And it was really that she didn't figure things out in time. She didn't realize that he was running away From something uh, and that they weren't going to return to California she thought the trip to Alaska was just a trip just a vacation you know they were going to be there for one summer not for 30 years and they ran out of money so she got a job and she thought it was going to be just temporary but then that became her life and became where she ended up living and it turns out that Gary maybe didn't ever really love her and didn't really need her in any way and was just too lazy to break up with her and it was just convenient he doesn't like being alone but he kind of wants to be alone, so it's just convenient to have someone there, and he kind of used her life in this basic way. And that's a an awful realization for her because it's the 30 years have passed and she can't have him back, she can't go back. And so she wonders about, about how how this could have happened, how she could have ended up where she is now. And it's not such a happy realization for Gary either, is it? No, for Gary, he realizes that he this 30-year deferred dream of being out in the cabin, that 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 was terrible to not have done it earlier. And he feels that by having kids and being with Irene and having to work on the house and having to earn money, he ended up really not going the way he wanted to go in his life. And he realizes at one point that actually his visions of this cabin and this life in the wilderness out in Alaska never included Irene. She was never in the picture, actually, which is a, a, a strange thing to realize after spending 30 years out there with her.
0: You know, your picture of marriage is so interesting and complex. Uh, Talk about, uh, and what makes this whole book, uh, is the prose. Uh, So let's talk about writing the the beautiful prose that just keeps us reading, no matter how grim, how dire, (laughs) how horrible, awful the situations of characters are, and you can feel yourself pulled into these lives. Mm -hmm. Does this prose just flow from the tip of your pen?
1: I really love landscape writers. I love uh, Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian, mm. uh, specifically for how the he extends. Best horror novel
0: ever written. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, and I don't like horror, and I don't <laughs> like that much violence, actually. Uh, but it, it, that novel is so beautiful sentence by sentence that even violence becomes landscape. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's, fa- it's a fascinating novel because we don't have any access to the thoughts or feelings of the characters, and we also don't care about any of the characters. We care more about a dancing bear in the last few pages than any of the characters throughout the book. But what we do get is this beautiful description of landscape that keeps extending from the literal landscape into the figurative landscape. So to give an example, he talks about the mountains on the sudden skyline stark and black and livid like a land of some other order out there whose true geology was not stone but fear. And that extension from the stone to fear is exactly the move that he makes throughout that book. That it, the, the stone is the concrete now, the fear is the abstract. He's gone from the literal landscape, the actual mountains, to this imagined, parallel, figurative landscape, which becomes theme. If you add up all those moments in the book, that's how we get a sense of what the book's about, what its meaning is. It's how meaning is created. In, in the work and and that's what he borrowed from Faulkner uh, which I think is the best part of Faulkner and it's in quite a few other landscape writers that I really like like Marilyn Robinson's novel housekeeping for instance has that same kind of extension of the landscape it's a, a portrait of a girl and and her sister as they're passed around between family members out in this rural landscape in northern Idaho and it's just so beautiful the the landscape and the lake and the different margins of the lake and how the, all of that changes shape and, and shifts and starts to give us a sense of the inside lives of the characters. So that's what I keep returning to is is landscape. And for the sentences, stylistically, I'm in debt to those writers and also Annie Prue, The Shipping News. The opening of that novel, she uses Anglo-Saxon meter and diction, and she heaps up content and cuts out grammar. So she uses sentence fragments, and she uses lists and changes her her verbs into adjectives. And does everything possible to just make this a content fest, like just as as rich a, a soup as possible. <laughs> and and so I'm really influenced by by those writers. And so I use a lot of sentence fragments and lists. And I try to to keep going to the to the content of the place, the the few images and and things in that landscape that will evoke the larger landscape. That will start to see the place, and through the place, we'll start to see the characters.
0: You know, I was. As I was reading this book, I started, found myself in the habit of saying, oh, look, he trimmed out words. I could see where you're pulling words, unnecessary words out of the sentences (laughs) to make it more compact. And it gives it such a, a rich flavor. You do write incredibly well about this beautiful Alaskan landscape. And it strikes me that you're something of a naturalist, and you've written nonfiction. So I'd mm-hmm. like you to talk about the influence of just nonfiction and accumulating the scientific knowledge, mm-hmm. you know, the natural knowledge, knowing the, the names of the plants, the mosses. That, that I mean, that doesn't happen instantly, without effort.
1: No, it's it's something I think that can't be faked, really. You have (laughs) to really be interested in it. I mean, I I love landscape, and I have all my life, and I've only felt at home in rural places. I've never felt at home in cities. And and to me... I can't really get lost out in mountains. I mean, I always have a sense of where I am. And, really? And, and yeah, I, I can get lost in a city or even a shopping mall pretty easily, <laughs> as my wife can attest. <laughs> I completely turned around, have no idea where I'm going. But I never get lost outside because my whole childhood in Alaska and in Northern California was spent going for hikes, 10, 10 or 12-hour hikes, like on, on many days. I mean, every week. And time out on the water on boats, too. And and I just uh, I, I feel at home in that place, and it seems rich and varied. And I'm really interested in learning the, the names of the plants and stuff, because a lot of these plants are pretty fascinating. Like horsetail, for instance, up in Alaska, it was originally, as they could grow as tall as redwoods, and they're the first to, plants to figure out how to use a vac- vascular system, so they could grow... As tall as a redwood, and nothing else in the world could grow more than two inches. I mean, that's incredible to think that they're now these tiny little wispy things that are a foot or two high that seem insignificant. They seem nothing. But they have this incredible history. They used to be dominant. And, and so at one point, Irene is thinking about that. And then she rips all of them out. And she says, you've stayed past your time. <laughs> you know, and, and that's the feeling she has about her life and what's happened.
0: Let's talk about, too, about there's so much beautiful kind of uh, symbolism built into this, and it's very natural. One of the things I love about this novel is that it's one of the most naturalistic novels I think I've read almost ever. It never, ever leaves the real people, the real landscape. We have a brief, extremely naturalistic scene where there's a dream, but I think that's about it. Mm -hmm. And, And so I'd like you to talk about... Creating that kind of uh, naturalistic, right here, grounded in this world feel in mm-hmm. prose, which is not necessarily friendly to, to real life.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I I try to make everything happen in the book in the final sequence as if it were a film, and it's just all the final sequence where, right from the beginning, everything is already set in motion mm-hmm. and kind of unstoppable. Oh and, yeah, in no, some that's way, a train. <laughs> yeah, and then I I try to to work that. Um, in as much real time as possible. So I try to have the novel not take place over a long period of time. And I was influenced a lot by plays, and especially by Greek tragedy, and the the idea of dramatic unities—that you're limiting the work in time and place and number of people—that there aren't distractions, and that you're trying to set your characters on a bare stage and put them under enormous pressure so that they break and we—they're revealed. You find out who they are as they're breaking, and and that's the—that's really the the tradition that I that I write out of, and and so I. I had planned originally when I started this novel to have it go all the way through the winter and then they would last into the spring. It turns out the novel ends just as <laughs> at the beginning of the fall. <laughs> I mean, the writing I find is really impatient in that way, in uh, in in that we can't we can't wait. We don't have any time to dawdle. Like you know, it, it all is going to happen right now, and uh, and especially with that natural landscape of the island and the lake and how that constantly shifts with the weather and the, the constant changing color and aspect of the water, um, that landscape started to have a real presence in the novel and and made demands. You know, one thing that strikes me is that your
0: landscapes have these veneers that are chilly and thin and frail and then through mm-hmm. which characters can fall into the abyss and you yourself talked about walking through the dead falls mm-hmm. and finding yourself falling to the abyss mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you haven't strayed too far from your childhood <laughs> it's just that yeah. you've applied that to marriage which is
1: really frightening <laughs> yeah and i think what i'm looking for whenever i describe the landscape is i'm trying to look for moments where it's going to shift or change shape and to give an example there's a time when irene is running through the forest on the, on the island, and she feels that the whole island is tilting, that the ground is tilting beneath her feet, and that the entire island is rolling over the whole thing's going to roll over, that it's top-heavy with all the rock on on top of it. And that's, to me, those are the exciting moments. There's another moment where she's at the edge of the lake where this rough of ice has built up from the freezing and unfreezing and refreezing. It creates kind of a ridge of ice that's a couple feet high at the edge of the lake. But it looks like a mountain range when you look at it up close. So when she steps over it, she feels like she's a giantess stepping over a mountain range. And to me, that that's how the landscape works in an interesting way. When it when it shifts in some way that that is still completely realistic, but suggests upheavals in the character's psychology. And there's a great scene where she's up on the top of the
0: island and she knows there's a panorama, but she just can't see it. Right, right. It's
1: all <laughs> blocked from view. It's <laughs> it's all the blocked. panorama <laughs> everywhere. Trees all around.
0: <laughs> now, uh, one thing that we find both in this and in Suquan Island is this notion of people who charge out into the wilderness thinking they're going to do something very elemental, as it were, and being mm-hmm. tremendously underprepared. Mm-hmm. So I'd like you to talk. It, this must be something that's happened to you or that you've seen happen <laughs> yeah, repeatedly. Yeah, this is me, really. Yeah. Oh, really? And my
1: dad, too. My dad took us out all these times where he almost killed us. Uh, okay. He went. We, he took us rafting one time on a Class 5 river in Alaska, which is like the highest classification or at least was at the time. And, and it, it's really frightening with these huge standing waves, a uh, very technical river. And he went out, bought a new raft, and took us down. He had no experience. He was going to be the captain for it with his oars. And he took us right after heavy, heavy rains. So it was a far more frightening river even than the Class 5. And uh, the first wave we hit, of course, it was like hitting a wall, completely drenched, uh, you know, just filled the boat, swamped us, knocked us from the front section to the back section almost overboard, We almost lost three generations of the family. And then we had to go down the rest of the river for hours, just slamming into everything with a solid, heavy, uh, completely swamped boat. We were like <laughs> a battering ram going down that thing. And that was typical of a lot of our adventures that we had. So Gary, with his ideas of the this cabin, the, not very well thought out. That's certainly like my dad, and it's like me, too. In building boats, I've been like that. I've just done my own plans and and just thought, oh, I can do it. And, uh, you know, it hasn't gone so smoothly, really, a lot of times. You know, for for a guy who's had some fairly uh, tough,
0: obviously very tough times in his life, a guy who's, who's had a lot of challenges and writes books that are frighteningly realistic because you get so close to characters who are really pretty unhappy and better at making themselves really 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 unhappy than (laughs) most of us are (laughs) you know you're kind of (laughs) jovial
1: Yeah. Well, my life is good now. I, for 12 years, I couldn't get Legend of a Suicide published. No agent would send it to editors. And I'd worked on it for 10 years. So after working on it for 10 years, for the next 12, no one would send it. And I thought it would never get published. And I would never get published. And I went to see and became a captain, and had a completely different career because I couldn't get a professorship because I didn't have my book published. Um, and I had a, hit this whole series of disasters. I lost everything twice. Um, but then the book finally came out, and now that book, Legend of Suicide, and this one, Caribou Island, are coming out in 15 languages, and I'm getting to travel all over the world for book launches and interviews and such, and I'm working on documentary films. like I was a captain for an ancient Egyptian ship in the Red Sea for a Nova film, and now I'm in a National Geographic film on a Viking ship that we're reconstructing, and it's just such a dream. I, I never imagined that all this was possible, so I'm happily married. We're traveling around a bunch. Uh, and it's just, it's incredible. I mean, I, I, I love to write. I always loved to write. I thought I would never get to just do that. And it's happening now. I'm getting to just write.
0: I'd like you to talk about that feeling, this new momentum in your life, and how that kind of, how you feel that relates to, you know, the, your previous momentum and the way you described the momentum of the lives of these characters. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I actually had this terrible sense of doom for about 20 years that I was destined to repeat my father's suicide, that someday I would hit a low point and things would get bad enough and suicide would just be there waiting for me, and that it really was fate or doom, like something you can try to run from but you can never get away from. And it took hitting a really low point point in my life, a low moment where I did lose everything and had a really bleak-looking future to realize that I hadn't had a single thought about suicide. I wasn't interested in it at all. It just wasn't even occurring to me. And so this moment that was a really awful moment in my life became this great moment where I felt tremendously free. You know, I felt so elated. I mean, I just felt like, God, that that doom was was terrible and, and it's done. You know, it's over. So um, there have been some strange surprises like that where the momentum of a life, the way it's felt for years and what felt inevitable, that it could suddenly shift, that it could so quickly go away, so quickly change. And I've found that everything that was worst in my life has led to the best things in my life and that I've had all these second chances and everything's been very redemptive. You know, I'm not religious, but I feel like my life over and over has been reshaped and remade. I mean, It's been the, the most incredible thing.
0: I've been speaking with David Van. His new book is Caribou Island. Thank you
1: for speaking with me, David. Thank you. That was fantastic. I enjoyed it.
0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.